clever. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. They were Texas' first political dynasty. The country lawyer who became governor before being impeached and banned for life from politics, and his wife, who he pushed into politics and became the first woman elected governor of any state. This week, we look at the initial rise and fall of Ma and Pa Ferguson. But first, what's your favorite place to play pool in Texas? Well, it's been a long time since I've had a rousing round of billiards anywhere, but uh, when we used to go play pool uh, when I was younger and more single, uh, we would often go to Holly's in Dallas, which is near the Valley View Mall. So it's a grimy, dirty little place uh, that had several pool tables and a really good jukebox. So that's all you can ask for. Well, I am going to say that I I liked Holly's, been there many times, but I really liked, uh, when I lived in Austin, was the Ritz on 6th Street. Now, of course modern hipsters might not be able to see past their own mustache wax to know that uh, <laughs> for a while this this theater was actually just a giant open uh, pool hall and bar. Had an incredible jukebox, and of course it was right there on 6th Street, so a lot of fun. I do miss it. But I guess you and can think, see your fancy pants movies there and drink and watch. <laughs> but, but I did go to that place with you one time, and I think they were playing a Chuck Norris movie on the projection screen, so... Yeah, they were, but I'm just telling you, that place was great, so I miss it. <laughs> well, um, I'm not much of a billiards man myself, but uh, I used to watch a lot of people play pool at the University of Texas at Dallas Student Union. Uh, saw some uh, good players, saw some bad players, and saw some hustlers. <laughs> um, it was a lot of fun, and it was free. James Edward Ferguson was born on August 31, 1871, near Salado in Central Texas. His father was Reverend James Ferguson, Sr., a Civil War veteran, farmer, miller, and circuit-riding Methodist preacher. Reverend Ferguson died when young James was four years old, but his mother Fanny stayed on the farm and continued to work the fields with her children. James was enrolled in the local prep school, Salado College, when he was 12, but he was eventually expelled for disobedience. Ferguson left home when he was 16 and wandered for two years through the western states, living off money earned from odd jobs. He returned home and worked on his mother's farm and on a railroad bridge gang, and eventually studied law with a local lawyer. He was admitted to the bar in 1897 and opened his own practice in nearby Belton. On December 31, 1899, he married Miriam A. Wallace, a pretty young local girl four years his junior. Miriam was smart and well-educated, having graduated from Salado College and also having graduated from Baylor Female College. Now, this is now the University of Mary Hardin Baylor in Belton. The young couple had two daughters, Oida and Doris. Ferguson's law practice didn't take up all of his time, so he expanded his interests to include real estate and insurance and later established the Farmer State Bank in nearby Belton. He also served for a few years as the Belton City Attorney. The Fergusons moved to Temple in 1907, where he helped establish the Temple State Bank. Now, all these towns are about, you know, 10 miles from each other. James Ferguson was active in the local Democratic Party politics, that is to say, Texas politics, but he was never elected to any office. He was very involved with the effort to keep local option prohibition from Bell County. 
The Bergesons were both teetotalers, but they opposed prohibition on political grounds. Ferguson helped manage the local campaigns for several state legislators and national congressmen and helped Oscar Colquitt get elected to governor in 1912. He had bigger ambitions, however. In the 1914 gubernatorial campaign, prohibition was a major issue, with several candidates taking each side of the question. The prohibitionists held an elimination convention and pledged their support to Thomas H. Ball of Houston. The anti-prohibitionists attempted to have a similar convention, but Ferguson, despite being on their side, cannily refused to submit his name to the list of candidates. This made it impossible for the convention to eliminate him, knowing that they would divide the vote by naming a rival candidate. The convention didn't endorse Ferguson, but the other candidates withdrew from the race, and Ferguson won the nomination by default. Clever. The 1914 campaign showed that Ferguson had considerable political savvy, and he possessed a captivating personality. Years of litigation had made him a political speaker with few equals. His early life experience as an itinerant laborer and as a farmer also let him connect with the common people of the state. He had a folksy charm, and he and Miriam became known as Pa and Ma Ferguson. The key plank in his platform was a law that limited to the key plank in his platform was a law that would limit the rent charged by landlords, but still provided the landowners with some protection. This appealed to both the tenant farmers and their landlords. Ferguson was handedly elected, and he was sworn in on January 19, 1915. During Ferguson's first term, the legislature passed several measures of major importance. The tenant law was passed, but was quickly declared unconstitutional. Most of his first term was taken up with education reform. Ferguson sponsored a system of state aid to rural schools, passed textbook reform, and for the first time, a bill requiring compulsory school attendance was passed. Several new teachers' colleges were founded and new buildings appropriated for state schools. To pay the expenses of this reform, the ad valorem tax rate for state purposes advanced from 12.5 to 30 cents. The land holdings of the prison system were greatly increased, and because of the rising price of farm commodities, the system became self-sustaining. During the war years, it actually showed a profit. Paul Ferguson also worked to pass anti-lynching laws due to the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. In 1916, Ferguson's re-election was a foregone conclusion. The prohibitionists passed over better-known leaders in favor of political unknown Charles H. Morris. The issues were prohibition, the hugely increased tax rate, and rumors of corruption in the Ferguson administration. Ferguson was re-elected by a majority of about 60,000 votes, showing that an increasing number of voters were displeased with his stewardship. The new administration instituted the Highway Department and was able to get the ad valorem tax rate increased to the constitutional maximum of 35 cents, but very quickly ran into trouble before it could get much else accomplished. Early on in Ferguson's second term, he became embroiled in a serious quarrel with the University of Texas. Ferguson had recently tried to pressure the university's regents to remove some faculty members that the governor found objectionable. One of these was Texas Lieutenant Governor William Harding Mays. Oh, I'm sorry. One of these was former Texas Lieutenant Governor William Harding Mays. Mays was a lawyer and a newspaper man who'd campaigned for the Democratic nomination in 1914 as a prohibitionist. And when he'd failed to gain it, he left politics to found the University of Texas School of Journalism. He was currently serving as its first dean. Ferguson felt that his former rival 
had had critical editorials of him published in Mays' newspapers, and that Mays, his supporters, and then university president William Battle were all responsible for negative publicity that reduced his vote count in the election. Practically as soon as he was inaugurated, he submitted a list of faculty members to the Board of Regents that he wanted immediately fired. The Regents sided with Mays, however, and in retaliation, Ferguson vetoed the entire appropriation bill for the university, setting off a firestorm of criticism and controversy. Most prominent Texans had been educated at the University of Texas, and the press highly resented the blatant attack by the governor on one of their own. On July 21, 1917, Paul Ferguson appeared before the Travis County Grand Jury, and several days later, it was announced that he had been indicted on nine charges. Seven of the charges related to misapplication of public funds, one to embezzlement, and one to the diversion of a special fund. Ferguson made bond of $13,000 and promptly announced that he was not only going to beat the charges, but run for governor in 1918 for a third term. Because of all this, the Speaker of the House called a special session to consider impeachment charges against Ferguson. Under the Texas Constitution, only the governor can call a special session, but Ferguson somehow managed to oblige things by calling a special legislative session of his own in order to make appropriations for the University of Texas. Presumably, he thought he had enough political capital to have his way in the legislature by getting the university's funding for everything but its school of journalism. Of course, he was dead wrong. Instead of the university's appropriation, the House, now safely convened, went back to its original intention of addressing the numerous charges against the governor. There was a lengthy investigation, chaired by Lubbock Representative William Bledsoe, and they found a number of disturbing things. According to his wife, Bledsoe was sitting next to the governor in the legislature chamber when he rose to announce the results and recommendation of the committee. Bledsoe moved that the governor be impeached on 21 separate articles of corruption and abuse of power. The Senate served as the High Court of Impeachment and spent three weeks considering the charges, and they finally convicted the governor on 10 of them. Five of the articles charged Ferguson with misapplication of public funds. Three were related to his feud with UT. One charged him with failing to properly enforce banking laws, and one charged that he had received $156,000 in cash from a source that he refused to reveal. The charges stopped just short of saying that it was a bribe, but the implication was clear. In August 1917, the Senate voted 25-3 to 3 to remove Ferguson from office and make him ineligible to hold any office of honor, trust, or profit in the state. Ferguson declared that the legislature constituted little more than a, quote, kangaroo court, but the day before the judgment was going to be officially announced, he resigned his office and declared that the decision no longer applied to him. The dispute over the Senate's judgment went to the state Supreme Court, which ruled that the impeachment was sustained. For a man like Paul Ferguson, though, an impeachment by the legislature, sustained by the Texas Supreme Court, ordering that he was ineligible to hold any office of trust or profit under the state, wasn't going to stop him from being involved in politics. Good old Paul Ferguson. Yeah. It's amazing to me that someone with basically, you know, a seventh or eighth grade education became a lawyer, yeah. <laughs> a banker, a governor. And the, the, the irony is that he was the he was responsible for the first law that required compulsory attendance in public school when, again, he had like a seventh grade education. He was yeah. kicked out of school. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like he was uh, very keen on supporting things that uh, he knew people would like. Yeah. 
Yeah, he was a very canny politician, that's for sure. Well, it's interesting to me that he's um, a Salado guy. I mean, mm-hmm. that is, uh, that's MacGyver's neck of the woods. Yeah, that's what my parents live in Salado, and there is a uh, bed and breakfast that has a historical marker in front of it, and it was one of his, where one of his first law offices was, actually. And they also have a home in Temple. It is now a quilt shop, uh, but it has a historical marker on it. There's a famous, uh, <laughs> there's a story about that house that when he was running for governor, he had uh, Ma sitting on the front porch dressed in a homespun gingham dress and a bonnet and uh, shucking uh, peas, field peas or something like that. And people joked that that was the only time she probably ever touched any food. So <laughs> she prepared. She was, they had, they definitely crafted an image of being these people, people, you know, just, just some of the folks down on the, down on the farm. Well, I'm just a homespun politician. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just a, I'm just a simple lawyer. <laughs> but even I know that the University of Texas. I'm just a simple country lawyer. What would I know? So, uh, I mean, I see, I see. I mean, what historically. And I'll give you a second, Sean. How many governors in the history of the state have been successfully impeached? One. One. Al Ferguson. This is the one. (laughs) And (laughs) I know there's been some accusations of malfeasance on other other previous Uh, governors. There's been a couple of governors. Well, Rick Perry was the first, was the second governor to be indicted or have any investigation uh, actually proceed to articles being considered but uh they didn't end up being voted on his term of office ended so i I do like the fact that the governor they can't impeach you unless you call the legislation together yeah well it's so let's let's maybe break this down a little bit for our listeners some of our listeners don't know uh, that the state of texas that the legislature only meets every other year they don't meet every single year so there's not a there's not a legislative session every year now, the, under the state constitution, the governor is the only one who has the legal right to call the legislature together to meet outside of the normal session. So if it had been a normal session, they could have voted on whatever they wanted to. Um, but, well, they couldn't have voted on whatever they wanted to. But they, could vote on, they could vote on an impeachment proceeding. But So for the, the ha- chairman of the House to call a special session, he was definitely outside of constitutional bounds. Um, Right. The remarkable thing is Ferguson did it anyway. Well, I'm going to point out, too, we're not uh, constitutional lawyers, certainly not Texas constitutional lawyers, but the Texas Constitution is a very messy document, uh, and it's quite difficult. So I think, I don't know where we rank on in, in 1 to 50 between state constitutions, where we lie. It's not quite as dense as Alabama's Constitution, uh, which is huge. But the, the thing about it is the Constitution that we operate under in, in Texas, essentially the, the legislature doesn't have much power that's not specifically granted to it. So that's why we continually have to pass amendments to change laws and to change things, because there's not as much flexibility for the legislature or for the governor, for that matter. Well, I would point people to go back and listen to our uh, Political Myths of Texas episode, where yeah. we talk about a lot of crazy right. laws still on the books right yeah uh, you know it, what's the la- i mean i know we don't want to spoil the ending 
I won't do that to you. But what's the legacy of of sort of this action? I mean, well, there's some things to read between the lines here as well. Um, he was incredibly popular with the people, um, but the political establishment and, of course, the press did not like him. Um, so you got to think that for the most part, when in, in the turn of the century, if you went to college, you generally speaking either went to the University of Texas or you went somewhere else. And most most wealthy people sent their children to the university. Farmers went to A&M or they went to uh, one of the other other schools uh, or uh, if you were. Um, you know, religious, generally speaking, you went to Baylor University or to one of the other religious schools. So the thing about it is, is that the House and the Senate were packed with people who had graduated from the University of Texas, especially the Senate, um, because they were more of the, the upper class Texans. So to have him attack the University of Texas and want to have his way with the Board of Regents when it was full of a people that went to the University of Texas and b friends and former colleagues of the of Mays, who was lieutenant governor, and and deeply entrenched in the Democratic Party at the time, um, he he kind of he was a very canny politician. Except he just sort of walked into this, like this was this was pushing it too far. He 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 had a reputation for being pretty imperious and just saying, this is what I want, this is what I'm going to do, uh, behind the folk, folky homespun public image. And this was a point where he didn't get his way and it went very badly for him. I was going to say, how does uh, uh, Paul Ferguson's popularity compare to Papio Daniel? That's interesting that you say that. We will talk about that a little bit in the next episode. Um, and we talked about Paul Ferguson in the Papio Daniel episode that he actually sought. Uh, Papio Daniel sought Paul Ferguson's advice when he was... Uh, thinking about running for governor. So this was later, several, this is, you know, a good 20, uh, 25 years later. Yeah. The, I think it's just, it's also just remarkable that he sort of came out of nowhere to, to, to finagle his way into this nomination for the governor. Yeah. Yep. We don't talk about it here, but they also, they, he's a very much a contradiction. Uh, we'll talk about this later, but the, the clan issue was a big issue at the time. And the prohibition issue was a big issue. So he was, a teetotaler, but he was against prohibition, uh, and he was almost assuredly casually racist, just like many people in in Texas and the South and the United States in that time were. But he was opposed to the Klan, and they actually shot up his house and threw brick through, bricks through his window uh, when he announced his position against the Klan. So it's a walking contradiction that that Paul Ferguson. Yeah, just like many Texans. Well, join us next week as we learn just how the Ferguson family found their way back to the Texas governor's mansion then. Unless you took Texas history and already know the answer. But still come back anyway, because we're going to have a lot of cool things to talk about. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We want to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. You love this show. 
You love your friends and family probably too. And you love the great state of Texas and our amazing history. So, what can you do? Leave a review on iTunes. Tell your friends about the show. Make them subscribe and then get them to leave a review. Because every review helps us to find new listeners just like you. Want to support the show financially? Visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a come and take it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Texas wants you anyway.